shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and with me is William Thrasher. I don't have a quote from this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this time around, we're looking at Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. We're sort of in the, the middle of looking at the four theatrical Hellraiser films. Check out our past episodes at sequelcast2.podbean.com. Hellraiser 3, what a um, third movie in the series, came out in 92, directed by Anthony Hickox, produced by Lawrence Mortorf, screenplay by Peter Atkins, based on a story by Peter Atkins and Tony Randall, based on characters created by Clive Barker, starring Terry Farrell, Paula Marshall, Kevin Bernhardt, Peter Boynton, and Doug Bradley, with music by Randy Miller, cinematography by Jerry Lively, edited by Christopher Sibeli and James D.R. Hickox. This uh, was distributed by Miramax Films and um, made about $12.5 million at the domestic box office, which was just about what the uh, little bit more than Hellraiser 2. Um, but Hellraiser 3 has a, a much bigger budget, it appears, at least. I don't have the financials on that. Um, Thrasher, when did you first see Hellraiser 3? Uh, I first saw the end of it uh, th- three or so years ago. Uh, my my wife had was had purchased a Hellraiser box set and was rewatching the series, uh, and I had I had walked in on her watching it and watched the final act. Uh, I hadn't seen it all the <laughs> way through until uh, yeah. just the other day. <laughs> That's one nice thing about the Hellraiser movies is I, I think we're talking about the same box set here. It has like Hellraiser 3 through 8. I think, yeah, I think that and was it, the one. Yeah. And they sort of cram a lot of movies per disc, but it's a, it's a very inexpensive set, which is nice. Um, Hellraiser 3 I first saw when I was on, gotten a Hellraiser kick uh, after seeing the first two on Netflix. I picked up that uh, exact same box set. And... Um, you know, by the time I, I got into Hellraiser 3, I had seen three Hellraiser movies in a week and was a little bit burned out on them. And uh, this one is um, tonally quite a departure, but upon watching it the second time um, to prepare for the show, uh, I liked it more. I think, hmm. um, especially compared to some of the later sequels, it's an interesting, um, how can I put this, more Hollywood sequel, right? Well, it's really, like, this, this movie... Is feels like it's been influenced by things like Friday the Thirteenth and Nightmare on Elm Street, and it's moving in Absolutely. that direction. Yes, more of a um, comedic slasher, I guess. I don't know. Well, and then be, beyond uh, that, this is also the first movie where Pinhead and the Cenobites are just flat out, straight up, up and down villains. They're monsters that you're running from in this movie, as opposed to strange presences that keep intruding. Yeah, they're much less uh, less surrealism in the movie, less uh, not as um, scary, uh, bloody, but in a different sort of way. Um, the director of uh, this, uh, Anthony Hickox, it should be noted he was not the original choice for the director. 
Oh, who's the they, original? Um, the original was um, going to be Tony Randall, who directed the second one. Huh. But he got removed because they thought, um, as he was developing the script, the screenplay was too dark and disturbing. Uh, which I mean, it's it's fucking Hellraiser. You know, it's like that seems like a weird thing. But uh, so they went with uh, someone who would give it sort of a lighter tone. Anthony Hickox had just done um, he wrote Waxwork and or he directed Waxwork one and two, hmm. which I have not seen. Something called Sundown Vampire and Retreat. And I mean, since Hellraiser three, he's worked on such stuff as uh, Warlock two, the Armageddon. Um, I don't reckon uh, he did a movie of Prince Valiant apparently in the nineties, and did Payback. No, not the Mel Gibson movie. Uh, it's the one with the C. Thomas Howell and Joan Severance. Hmm. So the uh, also, I mean, speaking, uh, we mentioned you know the first two films were by New World Pictures. This is by Miramax. Um, Miramax through their uh, Dimension Films label, although I think that was after this film, um, you know, bought up the rights to a lot of uh, horror properties and churned out sequels like no one's business. Uh, not yeah. only did they do this with Hellraiser, but they did this with Children of the Corn. Um, well, that's another long-running series. Yeah, you know, later, uh, you know, stuff. they did a lot of sequels to Scream. Um, I, I, I'm sure I'm missing a lot, but Hellraiser and Children of the Corn uh, come to mind. So, um, I'm looking at this, uh, I was reading, doing some research on this movie, and, uh, this poster, you might notice, looks a bit familiar, because they use key art from the poster for the original film. Yeah, they just changed the background <laughs> to indicate that it's The background New York. almost looks like the Miramax logo, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so shitty. Uh, with sort of like a, a sunset. And the tagline, what started in hell will end on Earth. Uh, not bad. Not a bad tagline. And the reason why the poster is like this is apparently originally it was a profile of um, Pinhead screaming. And the MPAA says that poster is too disturbing. Uh, <laughs> why? I don't know. I haven't seen the picture to which they're referring. But, you know, certainly by the time this movie came out in 92, it was... Um, the MPAA had really started cracking down more heavily on horror movies and uh, giving them a lot of shit. So um, it was probably because of that. So that, that they had to whip up this shit poster from the whatever, you know, key art was available. And you might wonder, well, hey, Matt, uh, you said Hellraiser box set. Why doesn't it have one and two on there? Because <laughs> one and two were through New World Pictures, it's difficult to get them on a set with the um, uh, Miramax stuff. But... There was a uh, a Blu-ray set that came out recently called the Scarlet, the Scarlet Box or something like that, and it has a one, two, and three, huh. uh, with all these special features. Uh, it's a pricey set, but um, and, and it's weird that it's those three because those three movies don't really, they don't really create a trilogy. I know, right? Like one and two would make more sense. I. I mean, I, I love my box sets. I, I should post a picture of my uh, collection on the Facebook page. But it is really one of those things where, like, yeah, it, it, three is really disparate. It's it's a, it's a standalone. I think you could watch Hellraiser 3 without watching Hellraiser 1 and 2. 
I guess you know. I guess I guess you could. Although it helps. I guess it helps having a little context. Right. Let's uh, give sort of uh, Thrasher. Do you want to give a summary of the plot? Uh, su- su- such as it is. Uh, yes. <laughs> So, so the movie, uh, the, so this, so like, like, like all franchises, uh, it must eventually come to New York. So that's where we are. This movie takes place unambiguously, uh, in New York. So, uh, short, short version is this, this, in this, the middle of the night, there's this weird, like, art gallery called the Pyramid Gallery, and, uh, J.P. Monroe, this, like, sleazy New York guy, he pulls up in front, walks in, and there's a really no tension haggling scene between him and the shop's proprietor. There's this weird art <laughs> object there. Um, so we we talked in the previous episode about the iconic Hellraiser pillar and how it shoots up at the end of the second film with Pinhead's face attached to it. Uh, so somehow between Hellraiser two and Hellraiser three. That pillar was covered in bronze and had the lament configuration stuck to it and is now in an art gallery in New York. Uh, This is never explained, but I guess it doesn't really need to be, although it does raise some very weird questions. So um, J.P. Monroe buys this object, this art object for a random amount of money, uh, purchases it and takes it who knows where. Uh, Then we flash to... Joey, uh, Joanne, Joey Summerskill, who's an up and coming reporter who has what should have been a career making story taken from her. Uh, and while trying, while chasing another story ends up seeing a young woman and her boyfriend enter and pulled into an emergency room. And the young boy is covered in these hooked chains, which animate and she sees those hooked chains rip him apart and so Joey launches an investigation trying to figure out what the hell just happened. And it's from there that the plot unfolds. Uh, as has been established in previous films, blood can bring the dead back to life. And since in the previous film, Pinhead died, blood can revive Pinhead. And so J.P. Monroe starts feeding uh, starts feeding floozies to the Pinhead pillar, which talks to him in some weird scenes. But eventually, J.P. Monroe's sometimes girlfriend, Terry, ends up taking his place at, at Pinhead's right hand. And the whole movie ends uh, with Pinhead reanimating, killing a bunch of people in a nightclub, making an army of Cenobites, and chasing Joey through a dreamscape. It should be noted the Cenobites are like all new Cenobites. Uh, one yeah, of which shoots the, the, CDs from his mouth. the only one that comes back. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I thought that was quite a strange choice. Um it looks like they were trying to just make a lot of action figures. I don't know if they have action figures, but I wouldn't mind one of the CD man. Well, part um, of me, part of me wonders: is it because they wanted to make all new Cenobites, or is it because they couldn't get the rights to the old Cenobites? You know, but in the sequels, they use like Butterball and um, the Chatter thing. Yeah, yeah but uh, rights Chatterbox. could have been renegotiated for those later films. Uh, that could have been. I, I, I'm not. I'm not privy to that. Um, and it sounds like uh, elements um, like the the CD um, Cenobite were added pretty late in the the writing process. Yeah, that's one of the weir- weirdest things. So that's another thing that they kind of 
way they skew the mythology is now Pinhead can just turn people into Cenobites. So yeah, there's there's a DJ at the nightclub who gets killed when a bunch of CGI CDs slice into his face, and then he comes back as a Cenobite with CDs in his head who eject so CDs stupid. from his belly, which he can throw like like shuriken. It reminds me of the uh, arcade game uh, Revolution X, where Aerosmith, uh, you help them fight some corporation or something, and you could, instead of shooting rockets, you shot CDs from the gun. Um, just ridiculous. Jeez. Um, so let's talk about the cast. Doug Bradley, back as both Pinhead and Captain Spencer. Um, yes, who shows up as a ghost, raising a number of questions. I should note that uh, um, at some convention, Doug Bradley had the question, uh, can you rank your uh, Hellraiser movies in terms of favorite to least favorite? And he said, uh, one, three, and then two. Hmm. And then four, and then he he goes on to the rest, Uh, which I thought was interesting. But um, I think he really relished uh, Pinhead as front and center in this film. Yeah, he gets more dialogue here and more screen time than anywhere, and he does really get to act. I mean, this is this is the first time we see Captain Spencer's personality, so so he uh, he gets to show off his range, which is very nice. Uh, it, it's a very good, like, dual performance. Um, and you get them sort of, like, fighting at the end. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's... Uh, Doug Bradley's not the problem here. Um, however, we have Terry Farrell... As a Joanne Summerskill, who I think I thought was a bit bland. Well, I mean, she she's exactly what women TV journalists kind of were at the time. It's an April O'Neil type. Uh, something, yeah. I mean, she, she's also even though this is set in the '90s, she does have some residual sort of '80s sophisticated glam on her. And it's nice that the main character is a woman again. That's sort of continuing that thing from the first two films. That's um, true. They do they do keep that, especially with with her and her uh, her relationship with uh, with Terry, the club kid. And I, I really liked Paula Marshall as Terry. I think she had some spunk to her. You no, know, she she the, she acts wonderfully, but I feel like the 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 character arc for that character seems very unmotivated. Yeah, a bit light, you know. Um, they even did a better job with the uh, the mute character from the Hellraiser two, I thought. And and, and this, it's it could use a bit more character development. That is true. Um, the rest of the cast, geez, we have um, the guy that I forget the character's name, but the um, the guy that J.P. Monroe, that's it, the guy that buys the pillar, uh, yes. played by Kevin Bernhardt. Uh, does a good job of just being a real, like, dick. Like, really unlikable, just asshole that you'd see in a lot of these movies. Yeah, and it, it is kind of... It, it's to the point where you're kind of happy when, when he finally dies and gets devoured by Pinhead. Right, which is a bit unusual, because in the other films you're always meant to feel uh, a lot of sympathy uh, for the plight of the main characters, but... And, and yet, I feel like in any other film, J.P. Monroe would have become a Cenobite, because he is he is a creature of impulse, a creature of desire, a creature of excess. And here he just dies. In, in any other movie, he would become a new kind of Cenobite. Well, I guess he does, now that I think about it, he does become a Just Cenobite at the end of this yeah. movie, but it's completely without personality. <laughs> Which is odd, because they spend a lot of time with him in the beginning of the film. 
that that makes me feel upset that this movie. I, I guess I'll, I'll get this out of the way now. While I enjoyed watching this movie, I didn't like it, and it failed to make the impression on me that I think it wanted to. I think it gets better as it goes along, but that's mainly because the action gets so delightfully cheesy. Um, yeah, this it, it's more of an action picture, I think, and more. It reminds me uh, in, of another strange uh, horror movie sequel, Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Hmm. Because in that one, Freddy Krueger goes to the real world. It's totally against, you know, the... I mean, although, yes, Pinhead and the Cenobites went to the real world in the other movies, it was in pretty uh, limited circumstances, and this just has them, like, walking into churches and making a priest eat worms and... Um, you know, like blowing up a goth club and it's, this is over, this movie is over the top and not necessarily in a good way. Hmm. Yeah. There, there's a, there's a, a lot of spectacle, but it never really reaches the heights of, of surrealism or Gothic or Gothic aesthetics. Like the first two films. That's, that's very well put. It's, um, tonally, it's it's missing substance, right? It's all sizzle and no steak. <laughs> yeah, and it seems there, there are parts I really, really like. I mean, even when he's just a face and a pillar, uh, Pinhead is acting the shit out of this, uh, and it, and he really leaves a good impression on me. E- even uh, even uh, you know Major Spencer. It's kind of neat to have a certain amount of sympathy for him because we get to see his Major Spencer side. Although, the stuff with Major Spencer also doesn't quite work for me. One, because it, ra- it raises a lot of questions such as, how can Major Spencer be a ghost but also be Pinhead? Is the Pinhead we a- see just his body reanimated without his soul, which is weird? But also, the Major Spencer we see is so kind of polite, well-spoken, put together, and honorable. Why the hell was he the type of person who would seek out the lament configuration to begin with? Shouldn't he still be kind of a a horrible person? It's a bit of a retcon, isn't it? It, Yeah, yeah, it really is. Man, like, I mean, I think... You also... There seems to be some sort of parallel in the script that doesn't really get developed between Captain Spencer and... um, and Joey's father, who was a Vietnam vet, that she keeps on having nightmares of. Um, where you have, you know, two characters in the army, and maybe Elliot Spencer, in a version of the script, might have supposed to be kind of like a father figure to, I, um, to I her, think, but it doesn't... I think that's what they wanted to set up. They wanted to create that yeah. parallel, because he was a military man, and her father was a military man. Although, that that being said, the Vietnam flashbacks didn't didn't work for me, if only because... It looks so cheap. <laughs> well, also, how can she flash back to something she never saw? I mean, admittedly, this that could be like, you know, that's just how she imagines his death would have been. But I just, I feel like, I feel like if she's going to... Re- look back in horror upon her father's death. She shouldn't be literally seeing her father's death. She needs to be reliving his uh, nightmares version of his funeral or that moment when the officers came to her house to, to inform the family of of the death. It, it doesn't, it never jives with me. It's also the cheapest looking Vietnam I've ever seen. What they should have done is had her father be a Cenobite, have that be a twist. 
That would be a twist, especially now since we know that there are multiple puzzle boxes out there. That would have been screwed up. Uh huh. You know, you get a thing of the re- the reunited with your father. Oh, daddy. Yeah, instead instead of Pinhead disguising himself as the father, uh, sure. Which, which, which uh, again, okay. like I, I don't, I I don't like it when when you when you have like this established creature, but then you invent new powers for it. That Pinhead, yeah, he never did that before, did he? I, I, I mean, I feel that's an unnecessary flourish. Maybe it's cheaper to do that than the uh, surrealism. I don't know. It. Oh yeah. Yeah. Anytime you have someone that can look like someone else, like it, it's trying to be a, a gotcha twist thing. We're kind of jumping all over the place here. Um, I oh. do like, uh, yeah, go. Oh, no, no. Did, what, did, what did you think about uh, Paula Marshall? I'm sorry, not Paula, Mar- uh, Paula Marshall. Uh, uh, Ashley Lawrence's cameo as Christy Cotton on a, uh, on a video recording of an interview that she gave at the mental institution from the previous film. That's idiotic. I it's really forced. Like I like you know, I, I like I, that she's in the film and I like that they try to make uh, that connection and yet I wish there was a little bit more weight to it. Not not like this though. It's I saw she was in the film and I was sort of intrigued because I'm like, huh. So what what does that mean she uh she does in the picture? Does that mean, you know, is she gonna continue her, her journey somehow? And it it's such a I mean, it's about as bad as, like, the cameo of Aquaman we get in Batman versus Superman. Where, like, someone's watching something on a screen. It's, yeah, it does nothing for me. I would have rather that not have been in there. I mean, the character of Kirsty Cotton is so central to the first two films that um, she deserved more than what she got in this. To quote Mr. Horse, no, sir, I didn't like it. <laughs> Um, I, I, things that I liked about this movie, uh, I do like the pillar and, uh, Pinhead pissed off trapped in there. There's something visually, I think that's interesting with that and all the design of the pillar, I think is pretty good. Well, the pillar is wonderfully grotesque. It it looks like, it's like, like a weird, like hybrid combination of like H.R. Geezer and Jasper Mm -hmm. Johns. Right. I love I love the look of it. It's not entirely convincing when we see Pinhead's face animate on it, but it, it, it when no. you see it, it looks good. I mean, it's a creepy art object. Yeah, uh, Doug Bradley complained in this film that he thought the makeup for Pinhead was poor. Hmm. Um, I don't think Pinhead looks that bad in this, except for as you mentioned the close-ups when he's uh, trapped in the pillar. It's some way the way that it's lit. It looks like something out of Pee Wee's Playhouse. It kind of does. It's not yeah. a bit of like Jombie or whatever, the genie. It's just like, oh, can you, uh, like, it, maybe it's overlit. Maybe that's the problem. Like, can you, like, underlight it or do it from a cool angle or something? Like, it, there's ways you can pull it off, and it just looks like a man sticking his head through a hole with stuff around it. Um, you oh. do get some pretty, uh, they do use. A, a bit of CG in the effects and even with the blood and um, the CG isn't terrible. Like I, I think the CDs look okay. I mean, they're just CDs granted, but I, th- I thought the, the, the special effects as we get towards the end and the action picks up 
aren't bad. Well, it's not it's not as bad as as you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even when there's C, even when CG is used to sort of animate the puzzle box transforming, it reflects that kind of otherworldly stop motion animation of the puzzle box transforming from the previous film, which I don't think we had a chance to comment on. So it kind of it kind of works. There's a consistency there that works in the movie's uh, favor. Uh, but can I can I t- say something else about that pillar? Go ahead. Pinhead and the lament configuration could not be in that pillar. And and I will tell you why. Okay. Um, so that's uh, that is a uh, copper. That's a copper uh, bronze pillar. The way that kind of metalworking is done is you make a mold of the object of what you want the object to look like, but then you fill that mold with bronze and crack, let it cool and crack the mold away. So that can't be the pillar from the previous film, because the pillar would have uh, would have been used to make the mold that this thing was made from what if it was merely gold paint well but it's not it's not gold because it, it's uh it has that uh that green uh deterioration yeah. on it that corrosion got it i mean admittedly i'm not i'm sure that's something that they didn't take into account when when they designed the thing it's just knowing knowing something about metalworking that just kept itching in the back of my head. <laughs> Although then again, you could argue that the lament configuration in Pinhead himself are so powerful that they left a psychic impression on the thing. You could even do a gag where it's like sword in the stone where people keep on trying to rip out the lament configuration. It's, it's, that would be great. <laughs> Instead, yeah. they just rip out Ooh. a rat. Right. Um, Although that that is something that did bother me though, because um, Terry's sort of short term boyfriend, who or I guess I guess he's not even a boyfriend; he's just a guy that she knows who who steals the lament configuration from the pillar. How was that supposed to work? How does an like what what was his motivation for? Oh, I'll just break off a part of this statue. Although he does attempt to open it, so maybe I, I guess the implication we're supposed to take is he knows what the lament configuration is. Which is why he just uh, takes it and then immediately opens I, it. I don't know. I, I, I'd like to think the lament configuration itself has some psychic properties. And it it'll attract does. people that, um, you know, might be uh, enjoy being stabbed with um, chains and whips and whatever. Hmm. It, it has sort of like a... a an S and M radar, if you will. Well, that's one of the things that kind of weakens weakens this this movie uh, for me is that in the in the first two films, the implication seems to be that the people who open the lament configuration, who become Cenobites, are the people with the kind of temperament to like master hell or master the the weird mm. realm between pleasure and pain, and that's why everyone else uh, ends up being killed by it. But then you you complicate that mythology by having Pinhead just upgrade people into Cenobites whenever he wants. Uh, I, I, right, I, I right. wish I wish the people who became Cenobites were people with that temperament. It's very arbitrary, isn't it? He yeah, just, it picks yeah. these. I pick you to be my followers, <laughs> uh, Especially it's... when Terry becomes a Cenobite, because one, it's a weak design because she's just a retread of the female Cenobite from the first movie, but That's with a right. cigarette in her neck hole. But like she's not a creature of extremes, no. So, so like I like I just don't I don't know why that's a thing she becomes, and she doesn't really register as a threat. And I want her to register as a threat. 
I mean, I think she looks good in the makeup, but... No, it's a, it's a good design, but it's a design that was already used in the first film. They just added a cigarette. Sure. Um, well, yeah, I mean, look, let's let's talk about the really where this film goes off the rails, which is when uh, Pinhead gets resurrected. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, so Terry, he... Terry oh, feeds yeah. J.P. Monroe to Pinhead, and that's what brings him fully into the flesh. It, I mean, it, it almost feels like two different movies. And I found the second half more enjoyable than the first. But it's also like a betrayal of um, the tone of the, the first two pictures. I mean, it, it in a way, it reminds me of the difference between um, something we covered on the original sequel cast show, the difference between Interview with the Vampire and Queen of the Damned. Hmm. Where the original uh, Interview with the Vampire movie was very respectful and historical and, you know, with with moments of, of, of shocking stuff. And Queen of the Damned was just kind of like explosions all over the place, no context, um, kind of sloppy. Yeah, I can, I can, I can see that. I mean, this this movie does get get messy towards the climax when the Cenobites are are, are besieging the city, and and then you have the whole the whole other angle where where uh, Joey has to trick Pinhead into entering Spencer's mirror world. <laughs> Before we get there, um, we have to talk about the scene where the uh, Pinhead goes to the goth S and M bar, um, which, <laughs> which I mean, the, the set decoration I think is, is actually kind of fun. You have this weird uh, robotic baby uh, that's tied up in chains that caught my eye. Uh, yeah, there's the lots bar. of creepy art yeah. objects in the club, which I like. Uh huh. And I mean, but you know, when he goes nuts, it's just the gore is over the top, which is fine, but like, uh, the gore in the first two films was like disgusting, right? Like it was, (laughs) (laughs) and this is just, um, like, uh, like comic books were like Deadpool kind of violence. It's yeah, no, it, it is, it is over the top to the point of being comic as opposed to being shocking. Like when, when the, when the strange art objects first start to move, that's pretty creepy. But once people start exploding and getting slaughtered, it's just, what are we doing here, folks? Although can we can we talk about the architecture of that nightclub? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so it has a bar slash nightclub area, but then it also has a concert venue, but then it also has a sophisticated high class restaurant where sh- shadows of people dance through these like paper window <laughs> things, and it has a pent a locked vaulted penthouse apartment. And everything is soundproof. Sound from one area, no matter how loud it is, never carries over into other areas. Except the one time one of JP's bodyguards comments, I heard a scream. Are you okay, boss? <laughs> yeah, it's a bit forced. I mean, I don't know. I've, <laughs> I've been to a weird bar here in Portland, Oregon, where the, the front of it is a fish and chip shop. And then in the back is a Doctor Who themed bar. Well, that's kind of appropriate, though, as archetypal I, I suppose, but um, there's also some bar, um, I need to really go to it, it's not far from my house, where there's a um, a bookcase with a hidden switch that has a secret bar behind the bookcase. See, that, that's why, that's one of the reasons I want to go to, to Gary Kahn in Geneva, Wisconsin. I want to go to the safe house. What's the safe which, house? 
it's it's a sort of pulp spy themed bar, Ooh. but. Like, there's no sign out front. You have to go to this building and go through this side door. And in the side door uh, is just, like, an office. And there's a secretary in the office. And you have to either give the password, and the password changes (laughs) every few days. You have to, like, know somebody to get it. uh, Or you have to do, like, a stupid stunt. But if you do that, a a secret passage opens up, and you walk upstairs to the bar... And one of the cool things about the bar is that there are TV screens everywhere, and those TV screens are hooked up to hidden security cameras in the office and all around the outside of the building. So if you did the stupid stunt, whatever you just did, everybody in the bar saw it. That's pretty But chances neat. are they had to do a stupid stunt too, so. Right. Uh, but it sounds cool. it sounds great. It's just sadly, like that used to be where all the game designers hung out at Gen Con back when Gen Con was at Lake Geneva. Sadly, I started attending the convention regularly after it moved, which is why I need an excuse to go to Gary Con. Yeah, speaking of like um, horror sort of you know or themed bars, and then we'll get back to talking about Hellraiser Three, Hell on Earth, dear listeners. Um, I, I never got to go to it because it was open for less than a year before it went out of business. But in Las Vegas, um, Eli Roth was. Uh, involved in uh forming a a haunted house open year round and apparently it was so scary and screwed up that if you you had to sign a waiver and if you medically you know were having problems or just freaking out they had secret doors they could pull you out to get you outside but if you made it all the way through at the very end there's like this horror movie themed bar and a lot of people would like go there and cosplay and stuff it sounded pretty cool um, now, would you have to go through the whole haunted house every time to get to that bar? Uh, yes, yeah, and they charge admission, you know, every time. You know, it, <laughs> it's Las Vegas. What was admission man. like? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I didn't get to go to it, but um, I feel like I know to... how. I think I know how why the business failed. <laughs> yeah, it's um, you know, you could just the horror themed bar. Vegas isn't the right town for that. Like, you could do that in a. Seattle or Portland or, um, I don't know, like kind of a bigger city that's more, has more, uh, 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 quirky people. Right. But Vegas is, um, in many ways is sort of like the, the most white bread vacation you can go to. Mm, yeah. I think grandma and grandpa want to go get the willies scared out of them and then have a vodka tonic with, uh, with pinhead, uh, with pinhead. Yeah. Oh, geez. Hellraiser 3. Um, yeah, so let's talk about the design of these, like, new Cenobites. Uh, I do want to mention we uh, the Chatterer is in this, um, you know, sort of briefly at the end, but uh, it, mainly it's it's a bunch of new Cenobites. Um, we, you talked about the Terry's Cenobite, but um, what about the uh, Camera Head Cenobite? Well, with the lens sticking out of the eye? With... The, the lens sticking out of the eye. I guess the the problem the problem I have is that it looks so it looks ridiculous because the lens will like move in and out and focus, which is a neat effect. Except to fit the mechanisms that do that into the prosthetic, <laughs> yeah. it has to stick out of the side of his head as opposed to sticking out of his eye. But it's still they try to line it up to look an eye replacement. So like they don't they don't do a good job concealing the effect, and I think that's where it's it it, it fails for me. And also again, the camera because it's Joey's cameraman that turns into the camera head Cenobite, he just doesn't have a Cenobite 
temperament. I mean, he's 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 one of the good guys in this film who just happens to die at the club. There's no reason why he should become a Cenobite. And the other thing is, since that uh, since he does a lot of destruction on a on a street where there's all sorts of shops, and there's even a shop with electronics uh, with like TV screens. They could have done a lot of creepy things by, like, having what he's looking at show up on nearby screens. I mean, there's a lot of wasted potential there. And he has a mustache. I'm not sure sure we're ready for a Cenobite with a mustache. Yeah, um, and he also has a lot of terrible puns that um, feel like, you know, that, that really is probably the most insulting thing about this movie for me. Is that, you know... There was not quipping in Hellraiser 1 and 2, or if there was, it was clever, I guess you could say, like, come Darkly to Darkly humorous. Right, yeah, dark, dark humor, uh, British humor. And and this, you know, um, a camera head Cenobite, like, kills a bystander and says, that's a wrap. It's just oh, these yeah. idiotic, boneheaded, um, I mean, this was like some, the way some of these Cenobites look is like something a 12-year-old would design. <laughs> it's it's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, and I think partly it is because they are they are sort of too too specific. Like the the original Cenobites, one could imply that they represent different sins, but here it's just fetishized technology. Because because what's the other Cenobite? We have you know the CD guy who we've already talked about. Then what is what does JP Monroe turn into? He turns into a Cenobite with like. Gobo arms and pistons in his head, which I guess the pistons are supposed to represent sex, but they just look comical. Right. Um, what about the barman Cenobite? He's, he's just a guy covered in barbed wire, which admittedly a barbed wire Cenobite, that's a that's a cool idea. That's something that you can do with. But here, he's just he's just in this movie to be a fire-breathing monster. Crazy. Yeah, it's... um, The designs are not as clever as in the other films, and that... It just seems really arbitrary, like you said, who becomes a Cenobite. I, I kind of like CD Cenobite, but maybe it's because it's so awful. Well, it's it's certainly the most memorable. I will I will give it that. It's a Cenobite you're not gonna forget, and it's it's like a piece of technology that's still with us. I still buy media on those kinds of discs, but like the the type of camera that the camera Cenobite's made out of that's that's very uh, that's very outdated. There's something <laughs> did, strangely yeah. timeless about CD Cenobite because holy of the shit, I did I did some googling. You can get a, a figure. Of the CD Cenobite um, from Amazon for under 30 bucks. Does it play CDs? Wouldn't that be great if you could put a CD in its head or its belly? I wish. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Um, It also mentions this figurine is uh, the 223,413th place in Toys and Games Preschool Pre-Kindergarten Toys in Amazon. <laughs> That's, it should not be listed, man. Is a uh... oh look at some of these questions on Amazon. You can tell this is a good movie because I'm talking about Amazon listings. Is this character fully flexible? I want to use him as a driver sitting on an RC truck. And there's four answers. Um... Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, what one of what? Do you want me to read some? Uh, yes, this sounds great. 
Okay. So, um, yeah. So here are... I'll go in answers from oldest to newest. No, the legs will not bend into a sitting position. From Denver Diva. Then Stephen Tirado says, Hell yeah, man, you'll love it. Trust me, it's sick. Stephen Tirado also says, Oh, yes, the CD guy would look good in your truck. Trust me, this character's sick. Pinhead looks sick, too. <laughs> Bayou Bargain says, I am sorry, I don't know if it'll work for this. Who is the seller? Um, which is, a, it, it's good he responded to a question on something he was selling, and that's a very honest answer. I give him credit for not lying and saying yes. I don't know was if he's st- lying. Was it but... still in the packaging? Because I'm just wondering how how, how you could... Because if it's not, even if it was, I presume you could look and see if it has joints to tell where the articulation is. Uh, I don't know if it's in the packaging. It looks like it um, has a hole in the foot to attach it to a, a sort of stand that looks a bit like a lament configuration. Oh, you know what? I bet that was one of the uh, the ones that the McFarlane Toy Company put out. A lot it of looks their like stuff it, in that yeah. period was more to yep. be looked at and not played with, so they didn't That's have right. much articulation. And uh, the last response, and we'll get back to wrapping up our discussion on the movie, uh, thank you for your patience, listeners, is um, from Deadman31299. Kiko, I uh, must disagree with the previous two previous answers. We own two of these characters from the Series 1. Uh, one is mitten box, other on display. He is not full flexible, but here is what he can do. This is like a one-paragraph answer. I would have skimmed through this. Um... Depending on the type of RV vehicle you wish to place him on, he is able to spread his legs, manipulated in the right way to mount something, as you would a horse leaning in a mild forward position, giving him a charge look. <laughs> manipulated another way, he is able to sit in a slightly backward leaning position, with his legs spread at an approximate 45 degree angle. Hope this helps, and you find it more informative than the other replies. Happy hell raising. I like the specificity of that. Yes. And actually, someone did answer, I guess it is new in box, which actually new in box for under 30 bucks. I'm sure because it was McFarland, that probably retailed for like, what, 50 or 100 probably? No, no. Re- the the retail didn't go that high. I don't think it would be. I don't think it would have been more than 40 at the time. At the, I, I guess at the time, maybe now they charge a bit more for that sort of stuff. Um, well, anyway... Uh, hopefully that was a fun discussion about CD Man action figure. I'm kind of tempted, but it, man, if it was like ten bucks, I'd get it. Um, but I'm a cheap asshole. Okay, Hellraiser three, Hell on Earth. Anything else you'd like to say about this picture? Yeah, we should talk about the final confrontation, right? Yeah, we're yeah we're we're yeah we were talking about how how Pinhead you know tricked uh tricked Joey into giving him the puzzle box, but. Joey then tricks him into entering uh, Spencer's haunted mirror world and Pinhead and Spencer merge. So I guess they become and it. And that seems kind of nicely horrific and yeah. uh, doesn't rely too heavily on, on early CGI. The makeup parts are really grotesque, but um, Joey really quickly masters the lament configuration. So while, while they're merging, she transforms the puzzle box into the spiky silver Leviathan thing and just flat out stabs Hellraiser, sending him to hell, uh, ending the craziness that's going on and putting her back into the uh, real world. And we do get a neat, like, I, I, I liked it once again, we see a character trying to get rid of the puzzle box, like in the end of the first film, although they don't have a demon come to rescue in the last minute. Um, Joey walks down the street and finds a building under construction and 
uh, there's still wet cement, so she dunks, she uh, forces the puzzle box into the cement where it will harden. Then we flash forward to the future. There's a huge uh, skyscraper built on that foundation. We go inside, and the chilling image we're left with is that the motifs of the lament configuration are now decorative design elements all over the skyscraper. And that's that's a neat ending that's, that really sparks my curiosity. That ending image almost justifies the entire film in my mind. It's a strong ending image, um, but uh, you're right. You know, the, the final confrontation with Pinhead is not satisfying. And also before that, uh, you get kind of a showdown scene where Joey's there by herself and she's surrounded by all the CD bites, including our favorite CD man. And mm-hmm. um, then the way she takes him out is so uh, stupid. She puts down the lament configuration on the ground it pops up and basically shoots lasers all around it and kills them all in one hit. Yeah, it sucks them all in like side or, or something. Right, and it's, again, it's a power almost that like you've a, never yeah. seen the lament configuration. It's almost like possess. a Ghostbusters uh, trap. Um, yeah, like a Ghostbusters trap, exactly. And it's just stupid. Like, man, like if you're gonna do that and have a big showdown, like eight versus one, you better have like a cool, cool fight scene or make it disturbing or creepy in that. Uh, I mean, it's clearly a budgetary thing. I would love to see the original screenplay for this. Um, and uh, it, it should be noted, you know, Clive Barker was quite busy when working on this film. Um, he was also producing things like Candyman mm-hmm. and... Um, and Rawhead Rex. Rawhead Rex, uh, Nightbreed, all that stuff. Um, trying to get a lot of plates spinning, you know, got a bit too busy, I think. And... Uh, one of his original ideas for Hellraiser 3 um, would have been a prequel uh, set in Egypt, and uh, it would have explained the pyramids were actually the original uh, Lament Configurator. Huh. I think that's too intellectual and too expensive for what they wanted, but he did help come up with some of the concepts for Hellraiser 3, so he's still involved at this point. Well, the other thing that I found interesting is that... uh, uh back when Clyde Barker thought he might have a bigger hand in this film, he wanted to do sequels focusing on Julia. And that would have been fantastic. She's, she's a great character. And in the mm. second film, we know that she still exists in hell and that unlike Frank, she's allowed to come and go as she pleases, as long as she can collect souls. And you could get a lot of stories out of that. Yeah. The actress wasn't, um, didn't want to keep on doing the movies. So, but I, I think originally, uh, she was to to die in a slightly different way in Hellraiser two to leave her open for uh, Hellraiser three. Uh, Barker was mainly involved in this film, aside from coming up with some possible story ideas. Uh, it worked a lot with uh, post production, adding extra gore and stuff. Well, did did do you do you know about the original downer ending this film was intended to have? No. So the the original version of the screenplay after Pinhead uh, and and uh, Spencer merge into one figure. So we know about Joey's career frustrations at the beginning of the film. The way the movie uh, was originally ended uh, was Joey was going to give herself to Pinhead to be his consort, bride, what have you. And in exchange, you know, Pinhead would use occult influence to make her a successful newscaster. It was going to be it was going to end on a whole like Faustian bargain. That's great. Yeah, that would have been much better. Um, it, it doesn't help, though, that her character is so thin in this movie. You don't feel for her as much as uh, um, Kirsty in the original. 
Yeah. Also, and this apartments bug me in a lot of movies. For for a third string newscaster, Joe lives <laughs> in an amazing apartment loaded with amazing things. Yeah, it's um, it's like a two million dollar apartment. Yeah, it's one. It's one of those things. Like, is she independently wealthy? I mean, I know she works on TV, but how does she afford that? Maybe she married and divorced Donald Trump early in her career. That's a whole different horror movie. Yep, Trump Razor. So, so yeah, so that was Hellraiser three, Hell on Earth. Do you give a Hellraiser three sequel yes or sequel no? When the movie, when we started recording, I was going to give it sequel no. However, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm going to give it a provisional sequel yes, because this is kind of the last hurrah before the series really starts to degenerate. And so if you're going to go out, might as well go out crazy. So I'm going to give this a sequel yes. I'm going to give it a, a sequel no. I think it's... I'm kind of on the fence, because I do enjoy some aspects of the the more action-oriented second half of the film, and there's some interesting ideas. But I really like Hellraiser 2, and this is a big drop-down. It's a a little bit too much of a big drop for me. So it's just sort of on the edge, but I'm going to give it a sequel no. Hmm. Next week, we're going to look at Hellraiser Bloodline. And then um, later we'll decide the movie series we're going to do after that. We'll save that tease for the end of the show. Oh, absolutely. Let's see here. Um, da, 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 da. Now we're going to do pitch a sequel, in which we pretend no sequels were made to Hellraiser 3, which, of course, is a lie, because <laughs> they did seven, the most recent of which Hellraiser Judgment comes out this year. Um, and we we pitch a sequel. So, um, Thrasher, what do you have in mind? So I'm going to do... Um... I'm going to do uh, Hell, Hellraiser for uh, Grim Architecture. So I love, I I love the whole idea of a a building that's been inspired by the Lament configuration. So that's that's what I'm going to do here. Uh, is that the Lament configuration has impressed itself upon this building? So there's this uh, there's this sky high rise. There's many different businesses that have offices there, uh, and strange things keep happening in in this building, just like minor things that a lot of people like to blame on ghosts or whatnot. And in fact, some people even talk about that weird massacre that happened on this street, you know, all those years ago. But what what it is, is that the Lament configuration is extrapolating itself uh, throughout this building. Uh, And in fact, the building itself wants to become a large-scale lament configuration that can open up massive doorways connecting Earth to this other dimension. So what's going to happen is, on a significant anniversary, uh, possibly like maybe the 100th anniversary of Spencer's quote-unquote death, uh, what have you, uh, this plan finally comes to fruition. And you know what? I like Die Hard. So this day is also Christmas, and there's a huge Christmas party between all the offices. People are getting drunk. People are kind of giving into their desires. Uh, and due to an accident where a drunk person uh, dies and bleeds all over the floor in the basement, 
That's what triggers the building's <laughs> transformation. So the building itself starts to transform into a lament configuration. Architecture rearranges. People are trapped inside. Uh, rooms are becoming death traps. Uh, and as people die, hell starts bleeding over. So Pinhead starts to appear. Other Cenobites start to appear. Uh, certain people, you know, th- there will be there will be ambitious business types who decide they would rather rule in hell who start making bargains to become Cenobites and, and become mad masters of whatever's going to come next. Uh, and the cool thing is, is not only will the inside of the building become more twisted and dark, and we will keep returning to the same key areas and see how they how they mutate, we will also see the outside of the building as it slowly starts to turn into a giant lament configuration. Uh, and at the film, at the movie's height, oh, excuse me, at the movie's height, the building itself will turn into a giant version of the Leviathan formation, uh, but made out of glass and steel. But what's going to, I think the, the, the best way to end this end, uh, I want to end with the opposite of a bang. So we know there are other lament configurations. So the way it's going to end is uh, Kirstie's going to show up. Because uh, Kirstie's recognized all the signs. She saw, like, an article in Architectural Digest where she saw this building and realized what it truly is. So at the end, Kirstie's going to show up with one of the extra puzzle boxes. And what she's going to do is she's going to open a lament configuration inside a lament configuration. And that creates this crazy inversion that causes the building and everything in it to implode, sealing the doorway to hell and destroying the building, Kirsty's lament configuration, and the uh, and the lament configuration that was sealed in its foundation. However, in the process, Kirsty gets stuck on the hell side of the dimensional doorway when it implodes. And so that will be the sequel hook, is that Kirsty realizes that she's in hell and she has to escape without the benefit of a lament configuration. Very cool. And the title? Uh, Hellraiser Grim Architecture. Grim Architecture. Nice title. Um, I, you know, if I was doing a Hellraiser 4, thinking about what they do in the film... Um, I like the idea of, of trying a different time period. I think I might, um, hmm. I, I would set it in uh, London, um, Victorian London, during the sort of Jack the Ripper murders, and it turns out Jack the Ripper is actually a Cenobite. Mm-hmm. And it, it would be a, a bit of a procedural, uh, more of a, a murder mystery. And you'd have... Um, a bit of I mix a bit of steampunk aesthetic in there as well, where there's a character that's uh, you know sort of a an old professor who has invented this um, sort of a gun that runs on steam and light and the kindness of the human heart, and uh, <laughs> and it, it can shoot rays of positivity into this uh, Jack the Ripper uh, Cenobite creation to to uh, to kill him. And it turns out the gun is made out of part of a discarded lament configurator. So that's what it would be called. It would be called Hellraiser 4 Bloody Old London. <laughs> and the uh, the poster, I think, would have... Um... And yeah, to tie in Pinhead, because he's a popular character, it would have a wraparound segment with Pinhead dressed in full British regalia with a top hat and, and a coat and a cane and a monocle saying like, 
we have such sights to show you. And he, he spins a globe, and it stops, and it points to London. And he says, hmm. a long time ago, there was... A long time ago, there was a Cenobite before me. You might have heard of him, Jack the Ripper. And that zooms into uh, London on the globe, and that's how the movie starts. <laughs> and it would actually be a secret backdoor pilot to a television series. I can see it now. And so each, and uh, the idea, I guess, if it would be a TV series, which I'm really going off the rails here, is uh, a lament configurator... The Lament configuration, sorry, would be in um, different cities, you know, like different around the world. Like that would be sort of the thing tying each episode. Each episode would be a standalone for the most part. Hmm. And it'd be like the Lament configuration happens to plop up in some place. Could be any time, could be any city, whatever. And then it's sort of like a morality tale. Now, now here's here's a question. Would you be willing to do, within that anthology, would you be willing to do a story where the Lament configuration is purely a MacGuffin? It never gets opened, it never gets used. It's all about how far people are willing to go to possess it or destroy it. Sure. Cool. I think that has some uh, potential. And if it was a TV series, I think you could call it, like, I guess just Hellraiser the series, because I'm not creative right now. I can't think of... I don't remember what was that Freddy's nightmares. You could call oh. it like pin pinheads nightmares or something. I, I've always wanted to watch that show. Um, I, Tales I've from heard... the Hellraiser. Yeah, Tales from the Hellraiser. Um, pinheads, pin favorites. Uh... <laughs> Pinterest <laughs> the series. <laughs> Pinterest. I like that. <laughs> Pinterested. Um... The Cenobite Chronicles? I don't you could... I like the word chronicle. Um, anyway, we've gone off the rails. So, classic sequel cast 2 tradition. On to what you're watching, where we talk about, well, what we've been watching. Uh, I saw a really good documentary uh, on Showtime. Yeah? Called The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? Oh, I've seen that. Oh, you've seen it too. Great. Yes, yeah. I have. Uh, written and directed by John Schnepp, who's uh, best known for doing work on Metalocalypse and other stuff for Cartoon Network. Uh, what did you think of it? Overall, I enjoyed it. I mean, it, it was it was really informative. Uh, I, I liked following the story. I think the only the only like weak points I f- I felt it had is that there's a couple of moments where they have like uh, have like cosplayers reproducing scenes that might have been in the film that they that never got made, mm. and some some of those scenes seem kind of shoehorned in and aren't as effective as they could be. They they look kind of shitty i think when they do the animation with the concept art that works a lot better oh that's gorgeous Um, yeah for listeners that don't know uh, the death of superman lives what happened is uh talks about a a superman um reboot that nearly happened in the late 90s would have been directed by tim burton starring nicholas cage as superman it sounds like maybe sandra bullock as lois lane although they hadn't decided on that chris rock would have been jimmy olsen and and it would Um, have reflected a lot of the stuff that had been going on in in superman comics in that decade right Uh, you know a a very loose interpretation of death and return of superman but also would have brainiac in there Um, in fact i mean we still see remnants of that in batman versus superman right to an extent i suppose with with doomsday and and some of that stuff but um, and this got canceled by uh, Warner Brothers a mere like four weeks before it would have started filming. 
they had blown about two to three years of prep work of pre-production work and um at least possibly like 20 mil 15 or 20 million dollars i think is the figure they say oh yeah um and because Warner Brothers had a lot of flops at the time, I, I thought that was one of my favorite parts of the documentary. I, I love talking box office, but they talk about, you know, how Warner Brothers had a whole year of flops and the combination of Tim Burton, Superman, and especially the uh, the price tag, which was estimated at $300 million uh, because special effects were much more expensive then than they are now. Mm. Um, but, I mean, it's Superman. It's an effects-heavy film. And I, I think one of the best points that the John Peters, who was a producer on it, made is Tim Burton, this man made Warner Brothers over a billion dollars off his two Batman movies. Oh, yeah. Can't you take a gamble on Superman for $250 million? And they said, nope. Instead, they made Wild Wild West, <laughs> which was a flop. I mean, actually, Wild Wild West probably broke even eventually on video. But, I mean, that's the thing. It's like Wild Wild West versus Superman, and you pick Wild Wild West. Yeah, I feel, I feel like it would have made money regardless. It might not have made a shit ton of money, but it would have turned a profit. Nicolas Cage, they couldn't, uh, he didn't decline to be interviewed for it, but they have a lot of good archive footage of him doing makeup tests. And um, especially his approach to Clark Kent was quite interesting. Like it had him in a, a suit jacket with a Mickey Mouse shirt underneath. Well, and uh, he had the Superman mullet hair going on. That was big in the comics. That was, that is one thing that I, th- I think would have been interesting about their, ter- their interpretation is that he was going to play Superman and Clark Kent like two different people. And it was really going to play up the, the mild madness of Clark Kent only, only re- reinterpreting it, you know, for, for, for the modern days rather than, you know, being a mild mannered would have seemed kind of strange and maybe even off putting in the thirties, forties and fifties. So in this version, he was going to make him a little bit kind of nebbish and nervous and sort of socially awkward. Right, as Tim Burton puts it, it's Superman and Super Freak. <laughs> um, in fact, Tim Burton's disappointment with the time he wasted on this movie that never got made uh, resulted in him doing, uh, he made sort of a, a cartoon series, a kind of spoofing Superman called Stain Boy, I think. Huh. Um, oh, is that back on Adam Films? Yes, yep. Ah, uh, back in the day. Good old Adam Films. Um, uh, the, the other thing about... I mean, I, I did like the documentary. I, I, I'd recommend it. It's not as good as Jodorowsky's Dune, but I think because it's just a less interesting, less legendary story. But it's a similar in that it's about a movie that almost got made, but did not quite. Um, the director, John Schnepp, uh, does this tradition that I don't really like where documentarians feature themselves in their documentary. Hmm. And there's a lot of footage of him looking at people and nodding vigorously. Oh, yes, I and, do recall that. And that's that's a real pet peeve of mine. And, I mean, I think it can work if you're charismatic or maybe if it's a celebrity hosting a documentary. Like, Michael Moore can absolutely pull that off. He, he's uh, very personable. But John Schnepp, um, he seems like a real cool guy, but, like, I, I could have lived without him being on screen, on camera. Hmm. But that's more of a taste issue. Um, what have you been watching, Thrasher? Well, completely by coincidence, uh, 
I watched another thing related to DC Comics uh, and Superman. Uh, I I ended up uh, binge watching uh, Powerless. I don't know what that is. Well, that's okay. That is that is completely understandable. The people who made the show don't know what it is. So so Powerless uh, was a uh, as of as of this recording recently canceled uh, comedy uh, on the NBC network. Um, the premise is that it's a comedy set in the DC universe, but it's about normal people who sort of have to deal with the fallout of living in a world populated by a lot of Rock'em Sock'em superheroes. It is not a good show. That being said, (laughs) it's not a good show. The premise is very, very flawed. That being said, the cast was amazing. And if this show had gotten a second season, I think it might have turned into something worth watching. Is this a... um based on a comic or no 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 it's not originally okay. it was going to be based on the DC comic damage control which is all about these like rescue workers and and, and architects and engineers who clean up after superhero battles but in the development process it changed into a uh, workplace comedy uh, and so it's a, it's a uh, the, the show as it exists it takes place in the R&D department of a subsidiary of Bruce Wayne's company which is managed by Bruce Wayne's cousin uh, played by Alan Tudyk and Alan Tudyk is the best thing on this show oh look you got Vanessa Hudgens uh, Danny Pudi Ron Funches yeah those are good uh, good comedians yeah yeah the cast is great and they're they're doing the best with what they have it's just that the premise the the premise isn't worked out and the material's not good. Uh, and they also have to, like, it's, it's one of those things where the more they reference something in the DC universe, the more you realize you want to be watching something about the superheroes instead. But the more they try to distance themselves from those references, the less you're wondering why you're even paying attention to this show because it's not it, it, those scenes aren't really well integrated into what's supposed to be the show's universe. I feel the same way about Agents of Shield and Gotham. Yeah, I can totally I can totally see that. So so here's a question for you. You yep. said um the show Powerless, Damage Control is a stronger title by the way. Um, oh yeah. Powerless between what? Okay, anyway, um you said you didn't really care for it that much. Um but it, no, it had no, potential don't. given the cast. Um there's a lot of comic book shows, uh, live-action comic book shows on TV. Given the choice between Supergirl, Legends of Tomorrow, or Green Arrow, or The Flash, which one do you think I'd like the most? Oh. I I am going to say Legends of Tomorrow uh, for, for, for a number of reasons. One, because it has shorter seasons than the other series. Uh, it, sure. It yeah. tells kind of much tighter serialized storytelling, which is pretty okay. cool uh, throughout the first two seasons. They also do have a lot of fun with the time travel premise, and it also moves very, very quickly. Neat. I'll, I'll check that out and see if I can. Uh, thanks for the recommendation. I'll, I'll have to see if I can catch up with it because um, I'm I know some comic stuff, but I haven't. I'm not as well versed as uh, as you. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see. I'm. Uh, and I see that it's got renewed for a third season, so that's all pretty cool. Oh, and uh, related and related to this to, to this series, I guess sort of two two comments I, I kind of want to leave you with. One, they did do one really good episode that really like sort of 
is probably what the show should have been, where the whole premise was investors from Atlantis were coming to visit their offices to discuss a potential uh, business deal. And that perfectly synthesized uh, a, a farcical workplace comedy with a show set in a fantastical superhero universe. Like, it... it it did everything well. If more episodes could have been like that, this would have been a show worth watching. And then two, uh, only I think nine episodes, yeah, only nine episodes aired in the U S there were three or three remaining episodes that ended up airing in New Zealand. And one of them I really, really want to see, but I can't find it anywhere that has a brilliant premise that you can only do with this kind of superhero shows. And the premise is, uh, Lois Lane dies. And everybody gets super happy because that means they can do anything they want because Superman will rewind time to bring her back to life. So everybody has like a crazy, everybody does every crazy, stupid and evil thing they've ever wanted to do because they expect Superman to undo it. Hmm. That's, uh, yeah. Interesting. You know, I am surprised that like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is still on the air. But I need to. I, I watched the first two seasons and I, I got sort of annoyed with it. I've also heard that um, what is the show Legion is kind of good. I haven't Legion's seen that one very yet. good. I saw that recently. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and then we got another uh, X Men show coming on TV as well. Um, All right. Let me look up what that's called. You know, the apparently gifted. the second to last episode, Adam West was going to guest star. I kind of want to know what they were going to do with him. They filmed all the episodes, though, didn't they? Oh yeah, they filmed. They, yeah, they filmed twelve episodes, um, but they they only aired nine in the U.S. So, we, which is weird. You'd think you'd want to show the Adam West guest appearance episode much earlier because people, I think people Wouldn't would you, tune yeah. in for Adam West. Oh, he uh, man! I was listening to the um, Fat Man on Batman podcast yeah. with Kevin Smith, and he interviewed Adam West uh, cool. at some convention for an episode and. Adam West uh, talks about how with uh, the with the 89 Michael Keaton Batman movie when Adam West when they wouldn't even audition him for the part he like cried for a whole week and was very upset mm. but then he sort of come to grips that like uh if in the movies they're the dark knight I played Batman as the bright knight hmm. and it was a, a real sort of sweet moment yeah, I li- I like that he's come to terms with like his his pop culture legacy and that he can he can sort of have fun with his persona now. And I love that cameo he did in Batman the animated series. Oh, it was the Grey Ghost. That the was Grey so Ghost. good. Great episode. All right, so um next week we'll be talking about Hellraiser 4 uh, Hellraiser Bloodline. Bloodline. Uh, to wrap up our look at the theatrical Hellraiser films. Uh, which is directed by Alan Smithy. <laughs> oh, he has Same quite th- the filmography. <laughs> Dune, the director's cut. Um, Burn Hollywood Burn, an Alan Smithy film. <laughs> uh, what else? You know, you know, maybe we should do a special segment next week where we just like talk about our favorite Alan Smithy films. We'll find a good list. They're, um, that's pretty interesting. A lot of the television edits... Of, of things we'll use an Alan Smithy credit if the director has enough clout. Mm. Including the in-flight viewing and cable television version of Meet Joe Black. 
directed by Martin Brest, who also directed one of the very first things we covered on Sequel Cast, no, the very first movie we did on Sequel Cast, Beverly Hills Cop. Oh, wow. Full circle. Yeah. I made a connection. Um, let's see. Uh, Sequel Cast 2. I'm a bit punchy now. Sequel Cast 2 is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. Check out other great film and TV podcasts at battleshippretension.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SequelCast2. Uh, follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T. Um, I do some writing here and there for uh, Games Radar. You can check that out at gamesradar.com. Uh, Thrasher, uh, where can people follow you? You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Uh, you've written a lot of role-playing game books. Uh, you want to give one of them a plug? Ooh, actually, something something that I've revisited recently. If you just want to find a... Uh, if, if you're a fan of uh, Warhammer 40,000, uh, there's a, uh, a... I recently revisited this because I had to pull some writing samples from it uh, for for a, 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 a job that I'm, I'm trying to get, which is will take a long time to explain. But the short version is I uh, can pick up the uh, source book for Death Watch called The Achilles Assault. Uh, you can check out a lot of my uh, grimdark writing in the... Uh, let me see, in the chapter about the Archeo Salient, and also I've written up some of the key, uh, the key players uh, in, uh, in that particular war or in the, uh, the notable personages section in the back of the book. So that, that, that's probably like the, the biggest name thing I've worked on. There's a lot of nerd cred that comes with the fact that you've given Games Workshop Space Marines orders, as it were. Yeah, I'm looking at a a message board thread from... Is this from a few years ago? I guess it would have to be. I mean, the book's been out for a while. Right. It's, uh... Yeah, this one guy on the on some message board says, uh... It's exactly what I've been hankering for as a 40k RPG supplement. A true source book, heavy on setting detail, and light on crunch. Cool. What does he mean by crunch? Okay, so th- these are these are two terms that I despise that show up a lot when people discuss uh, role-playing games online. Sure. But essentially, crunch is a catch-all term for uh, rules content, and fluff is a catch-all term for setting content and world-building. And I think both words do a terrible job summing up what they're meant to represent. What uh, terminology would you prefer? Uh, I, I would rather, like, ru- rules and world-building. I, I feel that both yeah. both words, I think, are meant to be used uh, affectionately, but they both sound dismissive. How do you feel about the phrase flavor text? It works. It gets the job done. It doesn't. You don't think it's dismissive? I don't. No, actually, I don't think it's dismissive. I think it's I think it's mostly uh, descriptive. Um I guess that 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 being said, you know, fla- flavor text is, is like it's a kind of world building. But it really is more like a seasoning. Like when you buy, like when you bought an old like GI Joe toy, they would have like a, a character biography on the back. That's that's flavor text. Uh, the the world building you get in a good RPG goes far beyond flavor text. Got it. Very cool. Um, so next time, uh, yet again, we're, we're going to talk about Hellraiser. Bloodlines. Bloodlines. I get the title on every fucking time. It's um, not memorable. No, it's not. I, I, I just think of the poster of, like, <laughs> Pinhead's head in space. And I think, like, Space Hellraiser or something. 
space razor. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so before we uh, wrap things up here, what do you want to do as the next series? Oh, are you sure we don't want to save this uh, for episode for for the Bloodlines episode? I am sure. Oh, okay. Ooh, to give us well, time to track stuff down. Well, we've we've already we've already done uh, a horror series, so I I say let's let's take a complete opposite tack. What about doing the Hangover films? I like that. Yeah, from Hellraiser to Hangover. Nice. And those are should be easy enough to find to treat uh, our Hellraiser hangover. That's right. You can cure your hangover with a Hellraiser. Hair, hair of the Cenobite that bit you. Man, now I just want to see like a beer Cenobite and a wine Cenobite. <laughs> and, like a hard, and a scotch Cenobite. A cigar Cenobite. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.